0: Now, Russell has experienced some amazing aspects of the grace of God. Maybe some of us haven't, although if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you've been forgiven and given the gift of eternal life, and so we always have a lot to be thankful for. But uh, Russell has an amazing testimony, and we're very proud of the way he's responded to God's grace and the way God works in his life. Let's uh, open the Word of God, please, to John chapter 21. Now many, many nutritionists will tell us that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but some new research, and I'm not trying to be funny about this, argues that for many people, it's actually healthier to skip breakfast and to maintain that fast through lunchtime. And so I would say, you know, who's, who's right? And I would say, I don't know. I don't know who's right about that. But here's something I do know today from John chapter 21. For sure, really good things can happen at breakfast. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. But let's pray for uh, teachability as we feed on God's word this morning. Uh, to me, as important as musical worship is, if you're here with a teachable spirit, you're ascribing worth to God By embracing, believing, and applying his word. And it's an act of worship as well. So all of this that we do, it really is worship. So let's not subdivide it too much. But uh, as we pray for our troops, our peace officers, our firefighters, in addition to teachability, we remember these uh, fellows who were uh, killed in Baton Rouge five weeks ago. And talking about Baton Rouge, there's been major flooding of almost biblical proportions in that region, I know Blanche's cousin and Eric's uh, uncle and aunt have been affected. A lot of a lot of people have been affected. So it well, was an, an area with a lot of need. So let's uh, remember them in prayer today. And uh, Eric, uh, lead us an opening prayer in that direction, would you? Yeah, thank you, Eric. You know, uh, the Bible makes it really clear that the world we live in is broken. Uh, you see it in the war, the crime, the pain, the death. That is all around us. Uh, Now, Christians know that God is very much aware of that. And he's not going to leave this mess the way it is. And he sent Jesus the first time as a lamb to make it possible for us to be savable, to go to the eternity he's planned that doesn't have all these horrible things in it. And we also know that Jesus is going to come a second time as the lion to end human history with the war and the abuse and the pain and the death, to end human history as we've known it on God's terms. But in the meanwhile, things were tough. And before Russell did his special music, he uh, alluded to that. But, uh, you know, this even involves the Olympics. Now, if you don't know, for the first time since 1904, golf has been a part of the Summer Olympics in this rotation and that's a picture of two of our American golfers who were on the Olympic team, uh, Patrick Reed, Ricky Fowler, uh, the guy on the left there, Matt Kuchar, who won a bronze medal, and Bubba Watson. Uh, those were the four Americans that qualified to participate in Olympic golf this year. And after Matt won his bronze medal, he and his buddy Bubba were taking a selfie there. But yeah, for the first time since oh4 I know Ryan is a big golfer, was aware of this, but yeah, we had uh, Justin Rose from Great Britain won the gold, and uh, Henrik Stinson, very incredible golfer from Sweden, won the silver, and then our, our man Matt Kucher won the bronze. Now some of you know that, some of you don't, but here's the bad news. I told you the world's really messed up. Last week I was looking at uh, my favorite theological journal, Golf Digest, online, and uh, there was uh, a headline, Matt Kuchar, the guy on the left, the American that won the bronze, Matt Kuchar will have to pay for his bronze medal. Not making this up. The Olympics are all about sportsmanship and national pride, right? Well, for the most part. But there are financial benefits as well, starting with the medals themselves. According to Money Magazine, a gold medal has the value of about $564, just, just for the material. A silver goes for $305. A bronze is actually deemed by the IRS to be worth only a negligible amount. So the good news for Kutcher is he doesn't owe any taxes on the medal itself. (laughs) However, and most people don't know this, but there are monetary prizes at the Olympics, which come in the form of bonuses as determined by each country's Olympic Committee. The USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, pays Americans 25000 for winning a gold medal, 15000 for winning a silver, and 10000 for winning a bronze. So Matt Kuchar will have to pay taxes, probably about $4,000 at his overall tax bracket, close uh, parenthesis. Matt Kuchar will have to pay taxes on his bronze medal. It just so happens that Great Britain and Sweden are two of the few countries that don't give Olympic bonuses to their athletes who win gold, silver, or bronze. That means Justin Rose, who won the gold, and Henrik Stenson, who won the silver, will, will just have to be satisfied with taking home their medals. They don't get any money. Uh, and watch this. The most unique prize any golfer was playing for in Rio, South Korea gives athletes who win gold medals $54,000. In addition, males who win gold are also given a lifetime exemption from otherwise mandatory military service. You think those guys aren't motivated? (laughs) The bad news is neither of the two South Korean male golfers who competed in the Olympics this year won a medal. The biggest Olympic payout is everybody sitting down you ready for this? Uh, and this is facts. This is a fact. The biggest Olympic payout of all is the seven hundred, the seven hundred and forty-five thousand dollar bonus that was offered by Singapore to any of its athletes to win a gold medal in this year's Summer Olympics. Singapore had no golfers qualify for the Olympic competition, but swimmer Joseph Schooling. Claim the prize. We're talking about $745,000. That's almost a million dollars by winning the 100-meter butterfly. And it's tough to say he didn't deserve it. After all, he beat Michael Phelps. So now you know. I'm telling you, the world is messed up. But against the darkness (laughs) and the materialism of the world, we have the light of the gospel. We're going to attempt to conclude the current teaching series today, the seven sign miracles of the Gospel of John, with an eight, eighth miracle. And the reason we're doing this is, um, because really, when we, when people talk about the seven sign miracles of the Gospel of John, they really mean the seven sign miracles that are in the first part of the body of the Gospel of John. We know there are other miracles, of course, and they start water with wine through the, the, uh, resuscitation of Lazarus. We saw that last week. But there are other miracles and, you know, just on my little diagram of the book, I stress that the resurrection of Christ himself after he finished the payment for the sins of the world, he validated that that had saving power to give eternal life after you die and more importantly after I die by rising from the dead. So the ultimate sign that Jesus is who Jenny thinks he is and Andrew believes he is is his Physical supernatural resurrection from the dead, but then today we're going to look at the epilogue. The the book starts with this prologue verses one through eighteen, this amazing, cool, organized introduction. Now we're going to look at an organized conclusion, and we're going to see uh, another miracle, uh, kind of it. Um, but wait, there's more. Yeah, you know, watch on, on the infomercials, you get that kind of thing. You you can't do better than the raising of Lazarus, right, James? Well, actually, you can. When Jesus is resurrected after he dies for James of sins, that's even better. Uh, and this isn't better than that, but it's a really cool miracle that I, I just, I love this miracle account, so we're going to look at it. And then, Lord willing, uh, and weather permitting here in Oklahoma, we will uh, next Sunday uh, begin a survey of the life of Solomon. But uh, our passage looks like this. First, we're going to see breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Then we're going to see a broken Peter is called to serve despite his stumbles. And then we'll see a little bit about the backstory of the Gospel of John itself. But uh, first, let's look at verses 1 through 14. The risen Christ interacts with his disciples far from Jerusalem. And Nancy, I put far because it's only 90 miles away. I mean, it's about, uh, I think, uh, I think the airport from the Oklahoma City Airport is like 70 miles on the number if you start, start from this uh, driveway here. And James and I, have, a lot of us have driven to that airport, you know, lots of times. So it's even actually Edmond, where James, Jonathan used to live in Edmond. He's moved to a different place in Edmond, but it's almost exactly 90 miles. So it's not that far if you're in a car or something. But the point is, when Jesus appears between his his death and three days later, what happens? His resurrection? And what happens 40 days later? Then he ascends to heaven, Connie, and he's not making appearances all the time. But during that period from the resurrection to the ascension, Regina, that's 40 days, and we see Jesus making appearances to different groups, different times, different settings. It's not just one guy in Jerusalem thought he saw something in the mist that looked like Jesus. These are people interacting with the risen Christ after he's been dead uh, in all kinds of different settings and different groups. And so it's important. So the risen Christ interacts with seven of his disciples far from Jerusalem and Galilee, confirming, further confirming the reality of his resurrection and confirming their and our responsibility to love, live for him, and to proclaim his resurrection. Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples, not in Jerusalem, not on dry ground, but at the Sea of Tiberias, better known as the Sea of Galilee, in that area, on the shores of that lake, and he manifested himself in this way. Now, what are those things there, Eric, after these things? Well, what John's told you in chapter 20 was first, John told us about what happened on the actual first Easter day, the appearance of Christ to the women at the empty tomb, the appearance of Christ to all the disciples except for Thomas in the upper room that evening of Easter, the original Easter day. Then eight days later... Uh, inclusive, we read about another appearance. Look at chapter 20, verse 26. After eight days inclusive, from one Sunday to Sunday, his disciples were again inside in a house somewhere in and around Jerusalem. And Thomas, who hadn't been there a week ago to see the risen Christ, was with them at that meeting. Jesus appears. The doors are shut because they're still afraid the disciples are going to get arrested, so they're hiding out from the bad guys. And Jesus just appears in their midst and says, Relax, guys. You know, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, uh, "Hey, you know, I understand you don't you can't handle it yet. Reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here with your hand. Put it into my side. Stop being unbelieving. Start believing." And Thomas, in what many say is the rhetorical climax of this book, answers and says to a risen human being who, in fact, is the God-man Savior, "My Lord and my God." And then the Lord says. Because you've seen seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe through the testimony of the apostles. So it's after those things. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 21. After these things. Uh, This would have been 10, 12, 14 days at a minimum after the resurrection. The apostles, who know they're in a holding pattern... Have gone at least these seven have gone back to their original region. All these guys are professional fishermen, uh, and so that explains some of the setting that we're going to be reading about. Look at verse, uh, look at verse two. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, that's the guy Jesus interacted with a week before in Jerusalem, and Nathaniel of Canaan Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. John's actually writing this. And two others of his disciples were together, so we got seven—not all eleven—minus Judas. But we've got the fishermen, the Galileans there. Look at verse three. Simon Peter said to them, "I'm going fishing." Some people say, "Well, he he failed so badly, he thinks he's got to go back to his vocation full time." That's possible, but more likely, I think they're—they know they're in a holding pattern. Peter knows he's got to process his egregious error and failing under fire, but they're just kind of waiting for more instructions and. But here's the thing, David, if you were to say to Jack some Saturday, let's go fishing, that's fun. That's fun time. That's relaxed time. But these guys are professional fishermen, Julie, so don't forget that. He's going fishing to catch enough fish to make some money to feed his family tomorrow and into the next week. So this isn't just uh, a rod and reel and fun, fun, fun. This is get back in the business a boat we own and let's go get some fish commercially. They said to him, we'll come with you. So they went out, got into the boat, and the bad news is they caught nothing all night long. And uh, Bob Shalot used to say, uh, "Fish catching is sometimes good, but fishing still always good. He, he enjoyed fishing whether he was catching or not, right? And when the day was now breaking, Jesus, the risen Jesus, whom they'd seen twice in Jerusalem, Thomas had seen him once a week before, stood on the beach, stood on the shore where they're coming in. After working all night nothing happened yet the disciples didn't know it was jesus so he's far enough away there and they're not looking for him on the shore either so they're not expecting that so jesus said to them uh most of the translations go literal here children you don't have any fish do you but that term there was kind of used as a friendly term today we say hey guys or hey dudes or something like that that's the way he's talking here hey guys you don't have any fish did you you worked all and he's probably he's smiling he's not making fun of them he's just saying hey you got a problem and i'm going to help you with it and they said, no. And I'm sure they were not happy to have to say no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right hand of the boat, and you'll find a catch. Now, com- commercial fishermen know you don't catch anything at that time of the day in the shallows. It doesn't happen. But somebody, probably John, who tends to be real flexible, said, just throw it in, and let's see what happens. And John may be, he's astute enough, Ken. He's probably saying, this sounds familiar. I think I've seen this movie before. You know, Jesus had done this earlier in the ministry. Luke 5 talks about it. So they threw the net in. That's kind of a miracle that he talked Peter into letting that happen under the circumstances. Uh, and then as soon as they throw it in and hits the water and it submerges, they're not able to haul it in because of the number of fish, okay? They fish all night. Nothing happens. They throw it in to the shallows at Jesus command. It's immediately full of fish, okay? Now, one commentator, Dr. Barclay, says what happened was Jesus had a very good view of the uh, conditions just past the shore. And he could see a huge school of fish. And he's basically saying, hurry up, throw it in the right side because I see a bunch of fish. Go get them. I don't think that's what this is saying. Okay? I think Jesus, in the same way, he healed the blind man by recreating the entire system, not fixing a broken thing. Uh, I think Jesus is supernaturally creating ex nihilo out of nothing, 153 fish, which is more than the capacity of this net. They knew stuff like that because when a group would go fishing like that, commercial fishermen, Lindell, when they got to the shore, they would count the total number of fish and divide it equally among them. The, the number's important, okay? Numbers are always important, but uh, here we've got a supernatural act by the creator, savior, and future consummator of history and putting 153 fish in this net. Uh, so they weren't able to haul it in easily because there was so much fish in the net. It's almost kind of funny seeing them struggle now pulling this net in. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John writing this too uh, modest to mention himself by name, but when you know he's an insider and he knows exactly what happened, said to Peter, Hey, guy, that's Jesus. That's got to be him. You know, he connects the dots real quickly. So when Peter heard that, he hadn't connected the dots yet, he realizes, yeah, it's got to be the risen Jesus. So he put on his outer garment and he threw himself into the sea. Now, James was laughing about that this week, thinking... You know what, by putting his outer coat on, because he can't trust those other six guys with his stuff. Right? Uh, is that why he did it? I don't know. But he puts his outer coat on, jumps in the water, uh, and tries to get to Jesus as fast as possible. In reality, he may not have beaten the boat in. The boat may have been able to beat him in, but he wanted to get to Jesus so desperately, He didn't want to wait. And I think he wants to say, Lord, I blew it, man. I said I'd be the only one who wouldn't blow it. And I blew it royally and cussed about it the night you got betrayed. And I, you know, I just fell off the wagon and I'm, I don't want to do that anymore. If if you'll have me back to serve you, I want to serve you. I think that's probably his motivation. Uh, but the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out of the, out on the land, the disciples saw a charcoal fire already burning and fish already laying on it. Jesus doesn't need the 153 fish they caught, and they didn't catch them. Okay, Jesus doesn't need your help. He can get by fine without you or me or Billy Graham. He doesn't need our help. But he calls us to be saved by grace and to serve him out of gratitude and love. He allows us to get in the Olympics of real life under real fire where anything that can happen to an unbeliever can happen and may be worse to believers and for us to play the game righteously and with integrity and with faith even when you have no idea what's going on around you. You know some things about God and reality that trump the now. That's the way this works. I always love that. Uh, they get out and they realize Jesus doesn't need these fish we just caught for breakfast or any other reason. He's already got it going for us. Now it's interesting, Steve, that, see that in verse 9 it says, they get out and they saw a charcoal fire. That's an eyewitness uh, bit of fact that John is re- uh, remembering here and, and commenting on, probably in part, because the last time he saw a charcoal fire, let's go back to chapter 18 of John, verse 15, was very relevant to what's happening here. John 18, 15. Yeah. This is uh, the night of the arrest tomorrow morning, early. well, The crucifixion will start at 9 a.m. And we read this as they're processing Jesus, the religious, and then the political trial. Simon Peter, we're in the... John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, but from a distance, you know. And so was another disciple, that's John. That other disciple is almost certainly John. You can ask him in heaven. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. John and his family, he was a, a business owner in Galilee. He was in and out of Jerusalem a lot before he became a disciple. He knew some of the big shots. That disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court, the outside courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, John, who was known as the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So he can be ringside to watch this interaction between Jesus and the religious authorities who are going to condemn him. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not one of his disciples, are you? You look like the, one of those guys hanging around him all week in Jerusalem. And again, Peter denies it. He says, I am not. Now the slaves and the uh, officers were standing there. This is the chill of the evening. Having made a charcoal fire. Boom. When John thought back about John 21, he thought, wow. The last time I saw a charcoal fire was just a couple of days before, a couple of weeks ago. Made a charcoal fire if it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. You go back to chapter 21, uh, one thing after the first couple million years in heaven, you can kind of ask Peter, hey, when when all that stuff happened in John 21, and you got out of the boat and ran to Jesus and saw the charcoal fire, did that bring back any bad memories? And he said, yeah, it reminded me Jesus knew exactly everything I'd done wrong. i I, I got to deal with this, you know. Uh you can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, you can fake people out, but Jesus knows your heart, and He knows what you do, He knows the good stuff you do, some of the stuff, good stuff you'll do that you'll forget about, that He's gonna bring up to pat you on the back about at the, in an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ where He commends us for the good fruits, the good, good works in our lives. And <clears throat> all this stuff we think is, is hidden and nobody knows about will also be, uh, very much on His radar, and He's the only one we need to please anyway, so. Forget about impressing people with your motivations. Just do the right thing for the right reasons. Some people understand and appreciate, some people won't. They don't have enough information to legitimately second guess you, so you just got to deal with it. Uh, Jesus said to them, and this is so gracious. You know, we tend to think Jesus is a stern taskmaster. He's going to point his finger at every little thing you've ever done wrong. But one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Revelation uh, twenty two twelve. 12. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming suddenly. And my reward is with me to give to every believer according to what they've done. Salvation isn't a reward. It's a gift. But there will be rewards given to believers based on every good, good work Connie Norton has ever done. And there's going to be a lot of stuff. Okay? And every little thing that's rewardable. Dale's ever done. Ever done Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And I just can't wait to give Lori her rewards. Okay? And here, look at how gracious the Savior is with these guys. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you caught. I mean, I got the fire already going. I don't need your fish. I got fish going, but I want you to contribute to this. So bring the fish you caught. Bobby, they didn't catch those fish. He created 153 fish supernaturally. Can't do this in a laboratory. He is the guy prior of the fish, but he's willing to say, well, you pulled the net in, you know, uh, that's the way evangelism works. We don't, lead anybody to the Lord. We just share some stuff with them and God opens their heart and they believe. He's doing all the work. But we have the privilege of living it and sharing it. You just can't believe how gracious the Lord Jesus Christ is. And a, a really important principle I, I love to teach is God is not any less gracious to believers who stumble than He was to us when we first came to Him for salvation. You can be a... Uh, a mass murderer, a rapist, an extortionist, a terrorist, and then, and, but then I came to the light, I came to Jesus, Jesus opened my heart, I believed in him, everybody goes, yay. But somebody who's done something pretty slimy as a believer, oh my gosh, we want to shoot our wounded. I mean, these people actually sin. We all sin. James says we all stumble in many ways. Some of us are just more subtle, or maybe some of our sins aren't obnoxious in the culture, the Christian culture, but we all have issues. That's why he says, walk in the spirit so you won't carry out the desire of the sin nature. Because they're always there. You don't get a sin nature ectomy when you come to faith. But he says, hey, bring some of the fish you caught. And you know what? He's got a big smile on his face when he says that. Because they didn't catch the fish. But he's going to allow them to bring them up. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. The other guys with the boat could barely get it ashore. And now the big fisherman has to drag it so they can count them and pull out some for breakfast. And look at this, Jeff. This net is full of large fish. No no little ones. 153, and although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. So this is way beyond the physical capacity of the net. Just bringing the net in is a miracle, Homer. Because the net should have broken any other time. They know this is a... They call this a 77 net. Because if you get more than 77 fish, it's going to break and you lose all 77. So you don't get that many. So this is like double the capacity, I bet. We'll see in heaven. Jesus said... Come and have breakfast. So I'm not sure if breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but some really good things can happen at breakfast here. And then the disciples said, but uh, Lord, you know, uh, who are you? What's going on? What's the deal? They just said, yes, sir. You know, uh, he said, jump. And the only thing they're saying is how high. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. Where'd the bread come from? That's also a miracle. I'm for sure he created that. And they may have had some in their backpack. And the fish likewise. Now, this is the third time that John records in his gospel that the risen Christ manifests himself to his disciples after he raised from the dead. Now, let's talk about the mystery of 153 fish. You've heard me preach on this before. If you know the secret, don't tell anybody. But, you know, uh, a lot of people just love to read meanings into numbers in the scripture uh, that maybe aren't really there. And Krista, because, you know, we, we talk about... uh The disciples would be fishers of men, and evangelism is kind of like throwing the gospel net out and bringing fish in. People kind of know that kind of metaphor, so they want to apply that to this. And everybody wants to figure out what the real meaning of that number is. Okay, Clay, what's the real meaning of 153, uh, the fish here? Well, you know, a very popular interpretation is that's going to be the number of nations in the world when Christ returns, when we have the last great... Gospel harvest, you know, in connection with the end times. There'll be 153 nations, and the fish represent the nations. That's what it really means, according to some people. And Christians love stuff like that. They lap it up. They write it down. They just just love stuff like that. It's ridiculous, but they love it. It's crazy, you know. Um, Another one I heard recently on the radio, this is the number of generations to the second advent. Now, you have to have a fudge factor on how long generations are. But if you, you know, you're you good with math, you could make it work, you know? If you got a calculator, you can make a lot of things happen. But, uh, you know what? Here, hey, Tammy, let me tell you. Tammy, I'm going to tell you what 153 means this time. And you can take this to the bank. That's how many fish there were in the net. <laughs> that's what 153 means. Grace, that's what it means. That's how many fish were in the net. And it's a record! That net can't fit, can't hold that many without breaking. It's impossible, and there weren't any fish there. They just appeared. Jesus doing stuff nobody else can do. Okay, breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now the heart of this passage really is seeing Jesus spiritually re- rehabilitating a flawed follower. He's not any less gracious to us when we mess up after we're saved than he is when we come to him for salvation. Uh, we got a problem. Peter had denied uh, his uh, Savior three different times after promising he'd be the one guy he could depend on, Jesus could depend on. And now Jesus just walks in, Andrew through a threefold public affirmation of his faith and really his love. Now, I can remember as a young kid hearing, uh, when you read this, in fact, let's just read through uh, verse 17. So when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Because Peter had said, I love you more than these other guys. These other guys may blow it at the end, but I'm not going to. You can count on me. And then he blows it more spectacularly than any of them does. And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said, Okay, tend my sheep, or tend my lambs. Verse 16, Jesus said to him again, second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he, Peter, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, in front of everybody else. It's kind of embarrassing. A hearing test, right? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. I mean, come on, Lord, how many times do I got to say this? And then I think the light goes on. Hey, I denied you three times, didn't I? Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. I remember as a young kid hearing this preach, I was told that, even though in English it's love, 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 do you love me, I love you, do you love me, I love you, do you love me, you love me. There's actually different words in the original language, and that was pretty cool. But the preacher told us, it's weird, I can remember stuff like this. Uh, I don't know where my keys are right now, but I remember this. Uh, you know, 59 years ago, the preacher said something like, well, Jesus was asking him in the original language, do you love me, and he used the term for the highest level of love, and is trying to fool everybody by saying, well, yeah, he's affirming it with a different word that means a lower level of love. And that's not what's going on here. The difference in the original is not that critical, but I'll tell you what's going on here. Uh, the idea that agape, Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. And then he says, do you agape me a second time? And he says, I phileo you. And then he says, Jesus says, do you... Really, phileo me? He's repeating back what Peter said. He says, yeah, you know I phileo you. you. know everything. I phileo you. It's wrong to say that agape love is the highest form of love. It's not the highest form of love. It's really, at one level, it's the most generic form of love. Okay? Because we're told to love our enemies, agapao our enemies, to pray for those who despitefully use us. We're supposed to pray for ISIS, not that they'll be successful, but that might be supernaturally converted. And some of those people have come to Christ. And then they, guess what? They always leave ISIS, alive or dead, but they're out of there, right? Uh, But really what's happening here is Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Do do you really seek my highest good and want to continue to serve me as one of my disciples? And Peter's saying, I don't just agape you. I agape you and you you, you. at the very depth of my heart, I have a fondness because of my relational connection with you. There's more than just agape, it's phileo. So he's saying, do you love me at level one, Peter, so we can start getting you back rehabbed and, and, and serving me again? And Peter's saying, no, I love you even more than that, level two. Come on, Peter. Do you, do you love me at a basic level? I love you at level two. And then Jesus says, so you really are saying you love me at level two? I do. I love you at level two. That's what's happening there. And we won't, you know, diagram the sentences for you. But that's what's happening. Uh, Jesus isn't saying, do you love me here? And Peter's trying to punt shorter. Jesus is saying, do you love me here? And Peter's saying, I'm here. Do you love me here, really? I love you here. Do you love me here? Yeah, I love you I Love you at this level. That's what he's saying. And he's being very honest at that point for sure. So pick it up, verse 18. Jesus, And by the way, let me say this. Uh, you'll notice the, the terms are a little different in the original and in the good translation as Jesus responds, hey, do you love me? You agape me, I phileo you. And he says, uh, uh, tend my lambs. Do You agape me, I phileo you. Shepherd my sheep. Tend, shepherd. And then uh, do you really phileo me, I phileo you. Tend my sheep. Uh, that term for tend is better translated feed or nourish. King James says, feed my sheep. Uh, I think... That's kind of James and my job, you know. We can't live the Christian life for you, although we wish we could sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes I wish you could live the Christian life for me a lot of the time. Um, But we can feed you, and we can kind of run you through some spiritual exercise. Uh, And so I've always taken this as a, for me as a minister, I always feel like, yeah, it's basically our general job description. Tend the sheep, feed the sheep, shepherd the sheep, lead the sheep, protect the sheep, that kind of thing. Now, in, so what Jesus has just done, Sonia, is Peter, who spectacularly denied Christ three times, is now lovingly led by Christ to affirm his love at the highest level three times. And so, you know, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's how the Christians are forgiven uh, after we fail and stumble. Now, I won't take the time, but as an extra handout I've got, Uh, a sheet there in your notes somewhere, the difference between salvation forgiveness and fellowship forgiveness. You know, you read passages in Scripture like Psalm 103 that says, as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? How far is the east from the west? Infinity, right, Carol? As far as the east from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus received through faith, Okay. But then we're told, we stumble in many ways and we're told in passages like 1 John 1, we're supposed to confess our sins. I thought I was already forgiven. You are forgiven salvation-wise, legally. All of the, everything that could keep you out of heaven, Jesus has died for and has been forgiven. That's your standing, legally, on your best day, worst day, first day as a Christian. But as Christians, we walk around the world, we commit acts of sin, we need to let Jesus wash our feet. I love what happens in the upper room where Uh, In connection with the Last Supper, Jesus goes around and washes their feet. That's the slave's job, but nobody else is going to do it, so he does it. Now, they would have taken a public bath before the banquet they were having, so they're already clean. But in walking with their sandals from the public bath to the the upper room, they got their feet dirty. So what happened there? What happened there? As Jesus goes around, why is he washing their feet? Because they got dirty walking to the banquet, right? What happens when Jesus gets to Peter and he's washing everybody's feet? Peter says, you can't wash my feet. That's a slave job. You're not a slave. You're the Lord. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no fellowship with me. And Peter, I always like to use this illustration. You know, men are like this, Regina. If one aspirin is good for you, five have to be five times better, right? And that's not necessarily true with medicine or with this. So Peter's saying, if it's so doggone important for you to wash my feet, give me a bath. And what does Jesus say? You don't need the bath. You've taken the bath. You physically took a bath. An hour ago, but you've taken the bath of salvation, okay? You're washed. And he says, all y'all are washed except for one. Judas is still in the room. But the bath of salvation is that as far as the east is from the west, so our sins are separated from us in God's sight legally. But as we walk around the world, we will pick up dirt and debris, and we confess uh, that, as First John 1 says, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... And basically, Peter is being walked through uh, a confession and a renunciation and a replacement of denial with confession here. Now, so he's good to go. And he's going to minister from this point for another 22 years. But in verse 18, we've got Bible prophecy that's got nothing to do with the end times. Prophecy about Peter personally. Look at this. Verse 18. Truly, truly, Jesus says to Peter, who's now back on the wagon... Able to get rolling again and eventually write two New Testament books and do a lot of great things for the foundational church. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. You were young, strong, handsome. You had a sense of autonomy. You're probably the biggest, most powerful guy in the apostolic band, just physically and certainly personality-wise. But when you grow old, about 22 years from now, big boy, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, what's all all that about? Well, John says, now this Jesus said signifying the type of death that Peter would die to glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, meanwhile, for the next 22 years, follow me. Now, the New Testament doesn't tell us this, but early church history indicates that Peter was crucified in Rome in 65 AD uh, after being made sport of and paraded around the city. And this is what the Lord's talking about. And um, when they were going to crucify him, uh, he said, I'm not I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord, and he said, Crucify me upside down. And so I crucified Peter upside down in uh in uh Rome about twenty two years after this event. So there's some fulfilled Bible prophecy for you. Uh look at verse twenty. Now, I don't think Peter Peter Preachers love to make Peter look like a bad guy because he does say some things and do the, some things that are crazy. But I think he's just, he's interested in his buddy John. Okay, uh, sometime in the future, I'm going to get led around and I'm going to die a martyr's death. Okay, I can handle that. But how about him? You know, I know you know everything. You know everything. How about him? He's pointing to John. And Peter turning around saw the disciple whom John loved, who just happens to be the human author of this book you're reading, uh, the one who'd leaned back on the chest of Christ at Last Supper and said, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing John, says to Jesus, What about him? <laughs> you, know, you just told me what was going to happen to me. What about him? And uh, so, you know, you don't have to answer every question everybody asks you. I'm starting to learn that, and I'm saving myself so much trouble in my life. You know, not, everybody, not everything everybody asks you deserves a direct answer. You just say, No comment, or I can't talk about that now, or... Usually I just say talk to my wife; she'll tell you. You know, she knows everything. Uh, but notice, uh, Jesus doesn't answer the question as asked. What about him? You just told me about me. Tell me about him. Jesus said, "If I want him to remain," and again, I don't think this. I don't think this is stern, although it is serious. I think he's probably smiling. We don't have the nonverbals here, but he says, "Hey, cool, calm, collected. If I were to want him to remain and minister on earth." Uh, until I come back, what's that to you? That's not your problem. You follow me. As long as you're here, follow me. Focus on Jesus, you know? Don't be, it's so easy for us to be upset and distracted by all the little stuff people do around you to bug you. you sometimes it, I go through weeks where I'm thinking, everybody's trying to bug me. Just everything they do is designed to bug me. And I, I, bet they, I bet they practice and plan it. Because it it's everything just kind of ah, uh, you know, everything just bugs you, you know. And you realize, no, I'm not important. They don't think about me. They'd do it any they'd do it if I went in the room, you know. I've got the issue, not so much them, you know. But uh yeah. He says, Look, if I want him to stay if it's hypothetical until I come back, you don't worry about it, you know. You follow me. Uh that's what Jesus said. I love this, that's about salvation. What did Jesus say, Jeff? He said, you know, don't worry about everybody else. Don't worry about comparing yourself with somebody else. Well, that didn't happen to me. I got a job, and and my friend got a job, and David got a job, and I didn't. Let me tell you about David's job. It's not easy, is it, buddy? It's unbelievable, man. Uh, But uh, beware that that trap of comparing your personal circumstance to everybody else because God's got a different plan for you than He's got for everybody else. You're special. He makes the snowflakes different. You know that? (laughs) Blanche, so yours is totally different, so it's not a fair comparison. But he says, if I want him to stay until I come back, don't worry about it. You know, just focus on what you're supposed to do for me. And so watch this. Therefore, garbled in the early church circles, went out this saying among the brethren that John wouldn't die until Christ came back. Yet Jesus didn't say that. That's not what he's talking about. He just said, if I wanted him. It's just hypothetically. So it's important to interpret clearly what's said in any document, especially the word of God. What Jesus said, if I want him to stay and he'll come back, Uh, what people said Jesus meant that John would live physically to the end times. Now, John was the last apostle to die. Interesting. Who was the first apostle to die? John's brother James in Acts 12. He's the first apostle to die in Jerusalem. And John dies in about 96 AD at the end of the century. But uh, he eventually did die. Okay. Boom. So what have we seen? Breakfast on the shore. Broken Peter called to to serve again. And now let's look at the backstory of the gospel. Uh, this disciple that Jesus was talking about, if I want him to stay until I come back, this is the disciple that Jesus was talking about there who's writing this down, who's testifying to all this stuff we call the gospel of John and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He refers to himself in the third person. It's kind of the Bob Dole phenomenon. You know, it kind of freaked people out when Bob Dole ran for president, but it's a, a legitimate literary technique used since there was writing. Uh, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were written. That Austin, that kind of sounds like, go back to verse 30 and 31 of the previous chapter, which was the uh, theme statement of the book. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I've seen, everything I know. I could keep writing for the rest of my life. I want not do that. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, that I'm a sinner, it's on me, it's my fault, I don't deserve to go to heaven, I can't earn my way to heaven by being a better person or a more religious person or a nicer Christian person or a nicer American white person or anything like that. I'm a sinner, I need a Savior because I can't fix it. Jesus is the Savior. He's perfect, died to pay for my sins, rose again. That you might believe that Jesus is that type of Christ, the Son of God, and believing you'd have life in his name. Okay, take this home. What did we see today? Well, we saw that really good things can happen at breakfast, right? Uh, But let me end with this. Uh, With verse 11 and verse 23 in mind, look at verse 11 again. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. What does that really mean? There's all kinds of interpretations what 153 really means. But I told you what it means is that's how many fish there were in that net, right? Uh, Jesus says to Peter, who's getting kind of nosy, you know. Uh, I could tell you a really funny joke about my mother-in-law, but just because I don't have to tell you everything I know about stuff like that. I'm just not gonna do it. I shouldn't have even said that. So, in fact I'm probably in worse trouble now explaining what I was gonna say. But anyway, uh no, she's pretty gracious on Sundays. But uh, uh you know, Jesus said, if I want him to stay until I come back, what's that to you? you just worry about following me. Uh so what well, do people say that meant? That Jesus would, that John wouldn't die until Jesus came back. So here's the thing you want to take home as far as just making yourself a much better Bible student. Blanche is a wonderful world class Bible student in part because she applies these principles. James does a wonderful job. Ron's a great Bible student. Uh, in part because they know these principles. But a couple of principles are uh, interpreting any text, the Bible, the Constitution, the Duncan Banner, any, any text. Interpreting any text inconsistently with the context is a pretext for misunderstanding the text. So just ripping out any number out of context. 153, what does it mean? Let's read something in there that's consistent with something else in the Bible. That's not what it means. It may be true, but it's not what it means. And then a really important uh, idea here is if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense or you get nonsense. When Jesus says, I am the door, he's not talking he's literally about being a piece of wood on hinges, right? Doors are accesses in and out. That's what he's talking about there. But when we're talking about 153 fish, we're talking about how many fish. That's what we're talking about. You know, uh, we're talking about if I wanted him to do something, don't worry about it. Use something else. He meant if I had the power to do that, but I'm, I'm not going to do that kind of thing. So let's let me end here. You know, there are some things hard to understand in the Bible, but the main things are plain things. They get repeated a lot, and I say the number one thing is repeated a lot is salvation is by grace, means God's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't undeserve it. That Christ died for our sins precisely because we can't be good enough to go to heaven. That he rose from the dead to prove he gives life after death to those who believe in him. Uh, and by focusing on Christ, receiving him as Savior, centering our Christian life on him as a believer, whether you're Peter, John, or you or me, we can stay centered in a broken world. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this very intimate Uh, unusual narrative that we read that's been tucked away as a little gem at the end of the Gospel of John. Draw us closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone's here this morning, Lord, who's not received the full free gift of salvation, open their heart to see and trust in Jesus Christ alone. For the rest of us, let this be a reminder the singing worship, the study worship, the fellowship of worship. Let it remind us that we can center our lives on Christ, not just on Sunday mornings when we're surrounded by our friends and our spiritual family, but on Monday at Duncan Middle School or Tuesday at Duncan High School or Thursday afternoon on top of one of those giant windmills for David Bearden or whatever it is. Let's stay centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. When we stumble and we need some spiritual rehab, let us uh, repent, confess, and Uh, denounce whatever it is we've done and said or thought and get right back on the wagon recentering on Christ just like Peter does here. We pray these things that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.